Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I did a little thought experiment this week in my head as to what would happen if I got up today and instead of our ordinarily scheduled sermon, you know, where you sit here and listen to me for 12 to 13 minutes, what if I at each service took three to five people and called them forward, gave them each a mic, and just asked them questions? First of which being, without your bulletin, leave it in the pew, recite for me perfectly at least one verse of scripture we just read from a few moments ago. I thought about what the responses might be. We are German Lutherans, so there'd be those of us who refused. I'm looking at David Smith, and he's looking at me like, don't do it. I ain't going up there. There'd be those of you who are already pulling out your cell phones to send Pastor Thomas a, a nicely, I'm sure, worded email about such a thing, or planning a, a warm reception for me in the back of the narthex. There'd be those of you who would be thinking, boy, I wish I paid just a little bit more attention a few seconds ago. There would be those who thought, well, now this just got interesting, didn't it? But there would be a few brave souls that could probably come up here, take a microphone, look at me, and recite at least one verse from our gospel reading, John 3, 16. It is quite possibly the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, especially amongst Christians. It may even be the very first Bible verse that you ever memorized as a child. It is, as Luther would call it, the gospel in a nutshell, or or miniature gospel. You see it at football games, and I even remember being from California, enjoying In-N-Out, and it's on the bottom of their cups. It is cherished, loved, and yet, if I could be afforded a little bit of flexibility this morning, I won't call you up here, but I'd encourage you not to jump straight to John 3.16. Because in a sense, it acts as almost like a jeopardy clue. It's the answer, the answer known, the answer given. But what should not be forgot is, what's the right question? See, when we move too quickly to just that verse in our gospel reading in John chapter 3, well, the tension that exists in that moment, in the life of the man who first heard these words, is lost. The tension that existed between one who knew what he thought was possible and what God called him to believe in left him questioning, did he even know just how God was supposed to come for his people? Did he actually know how God worked for his people? Did he really get just what God desired for his people to do in their life? And so it is good, right, and proper, even wise, that when we think of John 3.16, we think of the question that inspired it. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Our dialogue from John 3, it's a conversation. A conversation between Jesus and a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. Well thought of, influential, well read. He knew his stuff. And he was curious. He was curious because he had seen Jesus doing great signs and wonders and was wondering what was going on. 
And so under the, the cloak of darkness, the cover of night, he comes and meets Jesus and says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus' response is kind of odd. It doesn't even really necessarily address his statement, but rather cuts straight to the heart at what Nicodemus came really asking about that night. Jesus says to him, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. These two statements quite understandably, don't clear up a lot of things for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, even with some sarcasm, responds to Jesus, well, how is an old man supposed to be born again? What do you suppose I go back into my mother's womb and be born a a second time? And you really can't blame Nicodemus for this sort of question. You can't blame him for wondering what does it mean that one must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Jesus' second answer doesn't provide that much help either. Say, do not marvel that you must be born again, for it is like the wind for the one who is born of the Spirit. And then we get to that question. That question, I would argue, is a very, very important question today. How can these things be? It's a question not only did Nicodemus have for Jesus, but a question we often have even more than we'd like to admit in our own life when considering how God works, what God is doing, what God says he's going to do. How can these things be, we ask? And it's not a new question. After all, that which seems impossible is very hard to believe until one sees it done. People thought the Wright brothers were lying about being able to fly. There were even doctors who would say a four-minute mile was impossible until Roger Bannister did it. And well, for Nicodemus, these words that Jesus brings to him, they seem impossible. And yet they are the words in which Jesus not only tells Nicodemus who he is, but exactly what he's come to do. Jesus' response to that question of how can these things be is, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You can't understand what God is doing on earth. How do you expect to understand if I were to reveal to you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended the Son of Man. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What a striking example Jesus uses. A moment from the Old Testament, from Exodus, a moment that Nicodemus would have known and known well, where God uses peculiar means to work. After all, you could apply that question he asked to Jesus, to to that serpent. How can a, a bronze serpent on a stick save people from venom, poison in their blood. And it would force Nicodemus to remember it was because God said so. Because that's how God chose to work. And so if you hear these words, Nicodemus, and think, how can these things be? How can the Son of Man be lifted up? 
And therefore, the, the world saved by him. Well, don't forget, that's God's way. That's God's plan. It is God himself who says so. And then we finally get to those words, the answer I, I alluded to earlier, the words you've known for most of your life, likely. For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We hear these words and, and we cling to them. But these words created a challenge for Nicodemus. A challenge to the limitations, the rubrics of how he thought God was supposed to be operating. About how he thought God would come for his people. And yet, when those words were first heard by Nicodemus, the Spirit got to work. Just like when those words were first heard by us. However long ago that was, the Holy Spirit got to work. See, what I love about Nicodemus is he's a very relatable guy. None of us have been Pharisees necessarily, but we know what it's like to ask that question. How can these things be? It's incredibly understandable, especially when we in our own lives are confronted with what Nicodemus was confronted with when God challenges us in what we think is possible for him to do. How can these things be? Well, God says, because I said so. I say so with the power of the one who created the heavens and the earth. The power of the one who truly sent my son to save this world. See, this experience by Nicodemus, this conversation, these short 21 verses or so, it's an incredible moment in the Gospel of John. The experience of Nicodemus we read of in John is brief, but it is extraordinary when you think about it. Here's this Pharisee, and I would put his transformation right up there with, with Paul, with Moses, with Abraham, with any of the disciples. This Pharisee who came to Jesus with questions. And we read of how that faith journey looks throughout his life. Just two other spots. It's brief, but in John chapter 7, we read that when the Pharisees get together and decide to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus stands up to them as a Pharisee himself and saying, does our law permit that we judge or arrest a man without first seeing and hearing what he's supposed to have done? But then there's the, the second other time we see Nicodemus, the third and final time we see him in John chapter 19 on a fateful Friday where after Jesus' disciples had scattered after they cowered in fear, this Pharisee with Joseph of Arimathea, this Pharisee gets to see exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Gets to see what he thought was impossible right before his own eyes. And Nicodemus is one of the men that takes Jesus down from the cross, who lays him in the tomb. And he probably thought that day the same question he had a few years prior. How can these things be? How can these things be that this man I saw do such great signs? 
How can it literally be that the one I saw do all of this, who did nothing wrong, my friends tried, crucified, killed him? How can these things be? But we're given just a little clue in John 19 to the, the transformational aspect of Nicodemus' life. See, he brings with him not just the body of Jesus, but myrrh and aloes, burial spices. And there's one little detail that we often skip over. He brings with him not just enough for a regular guy, but 75 pounds worth of these spices. He prepares this body for what he sees as a royal burial. Now, he didn't understand it all yet, but we get to see a glimpse of the faith that Nicodemus truly had, who he ended up recognizing Jesus to be. And I have to imagine, he asked that question one more time just a few days later. When he heard news that this man that he buried laid in a tomb, he was no longer in that tomb. I have to imagine that Nicodemus found himself one more time asking that question, how can these things be? It is incredible, and it is challenging at times for us to think about what it means that we are born again of water and the Spirit, what it means that our baptismal life grants us the right to be called a child of God. Even Luther himself would address a question like this in a roundabout way, saying in his small catechism, how can water do such great things? He answered it one way, but I would argue you could always answer it this way. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And yet it is the goal of Christ's words to Nicodemus in John 3. It's not just for Nicodemus to, to gain some head knowledge, to get a new understanding, but also for his life to be lived out in a way that reflects what Christ came to do. To move him from a place of questioning of doubt, of being timid in the face of that which challenges him to a place of unquenchable confidence. And it is the same way for us. We may wonder, how can these things be? But let us not forget that God does exactly what he says he will do. That we are to go forth, as Jesus would say at the end of this conversation to Nicodemus, as doers of the truth, doers of the only truth, even when such beliefs go against the wisdom of the world, when God pushes us to be bold in our pursuit of the heavenly kingdom, and not just for us, but listen again to those words you've heard over and over and over again, for whoever believes in his name. That's how Paul talks about it, at least with the Ephesian church, saying in Ephesians chapter 3 that our relationship with God is like this, that according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, it is in him whom we have access with boldness and confidence through our faith in him. It is that sort of confidence that Jesus would ask us to have, to trust that truly our life, our gifts, our ability 
They rest not in the power of ourselves, but in the power of the one who came to be lifted up, came to die and rise again so that you might know what it's like to be a part of God's family. So that you could hear those words with great comfort, knowing that Christ did not come to condemn us in our sin, but came to save poor, miserable sinners. And it is in that reality that it transcends our notions, our rubrics, our metrics for what the world says our lives ought to be. And instead, we rely on a whole new metric, a whole new rubric, and that is in who God says we are. How can these things be? Well, the good news is that in Christ, we take great comfort, not in asking a question like that, but in knowing the answer and knowing it in full. For it is God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.